I still remember my sophomore year of college, Christmas break, uh, my parents came to my basketball game in Indianapolis, Marion College, and uh, that game didn't go well. I had a bad attitude, and the reason why, unfortunately, I remember that Christmas break is because I ended up having a bad attitude the entire Christmas break. Now, I don't know uh, if you, um, from time to time, think about that one Christmas, that one Thanksgiving. Remember that one time the whole family got together and things didn't go well? She said that. He blew up. And we don't really bring that up anymore. Like, you hate the fact that that is part of the reality of your past. So here I am, 19 years old, and that's the one Christmas break that I regret more than any others because that was a missed opportunity. Uh, for me to really embrace a stretch of time, right, Christmas break from college being a longer stretch than what I had in high school, to embrace that time with family who are supposed to mean the most to me. And when I said hurtful things to them or just had a bad attitude, uh, I missed that. I missed the opportunity for a powerful or a positive interruption because I made it a negative interruption. So I want us to think about the significance of interruption today as we look at one specific scripture, one specific story When you hear that word interruption, it typically has a negative connotation. Uh, Somebody's getting in your way or somebody is uh, bothering you when you're uh, up to something. But what I hope for us over this next six-week holiday stretch, uh, as we are caught up in the chaos, that we look for opportunities to positively interrupt other people's lives. Uh, Jesus is the best example of this. And one of the best stories where this is on display is Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. Look at verse 1, first of all, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Seems to be like a setup verse, but I love the phrase, those two words, passing through. That's significant because we spend most of our days, most of our lives, passing through to get to where we want to get to. And anything that gets in the way of where we're on the way to, we view as an obstacle, don't we? You're slowing me down, right? You interrupted Right? my trajectory for where I'm really wanting to go. And oftentimes, when we view that as merely an obstacle, we miss out on the opportunity. I think about, you know, practically, when you take a road trip, you're excited about the destination. And anywhere you have to stop along the way, it's just a necessary stop to go to the bathroom or to eat food. Nobody says, we're going to take a road trip because we, we have highlighted all the, the necessary stops along the way. We can't wait to stop at this specific place to go to the bathroom or this specific place to go, go to eat, right? Maybe to eat, but... It's ultimately about the destination, but oftentimes because we spend so much of our lives in this passing through rhythm, what are we potentially missing when we're only focused on where we specifically want to go? So here we have Jesus. He enters Jericho, but Jericho isn't the point. It's not the ultimate destination. Jerusalem is. He's just passing through. Verse 2, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now, if you grew up in church, you know Zacchaeus is a wee little man because you sang the song. If you've never heard that song, that sounds really weird and maybe even offensive, right? But Scripture actually is kinder than the song. I don't know who made up the song, but they called him a wee little man, and that's how we know him. It's interesting in Scripture, the, the phrase chief tax collector, that title, you won't find anywhere else in Scripture. So Zacchaeus was not a popular guy. Right? He took more money from people than he was supposed to in his collection of taxes. But here's verse 3. Here's why we sing that song. Scripture, fortunately, puts it nicer. He wanted to see who Jesus was, Zacchaeus did, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. So imagine this visual. 
Zacchaeus, right? He doesn't know he's living as a, he doesn't believe that he's living uh, the right kind of life, but yet he's still excited to see Jesus because he's heard about um, the fact of what he's done and that he's a big deal. Climbs up the sycamore tree. I've been to Israel, to Jericho specifically, and there's a 2,000-year-old sycamore tree. They can't uh, confirm that that's the exact same sycamore tree, but it was cool to imagine that visual of Zacchaeus running ahead, just wanting to catch a glimpse of Jesus. Verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, here's the most significant part of this story. When Jesus reached the spot, Jesus looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. This is so fascinating. This is like just the, those two verses, verses five and six, could be a mandate for the way in which we live our lives. Because we're all on the way to somewhere, but as we're passing through, are we paying attention to the opportunity that looks like an obstacle and is technically a disruption to where we're trying to go as maybe what could be primary for that day? I mean, Jesus, he is on the way to do great things. He's, scripture never shows him in a hurry, yet all, where he's going is always important because we see what he does when he arrives. And so I don't, you know, Jesus is God. We know that he's all-knowing. I don't know at what point Jesus knows who he's going to run into, but if we're just thinking through, as Jesus has a plan, uh, this doesn't seem to be a part of his plan when he woke up that day, but here he is taking time for Zacchaeus, not to just look up, you know, throw a, a wave, a fist bump, and say, oh, you know, what's up, and he knows his name, I don't know if that freaked Zacchaeus out, but he not only looks up and, and sees him, he says, uh, I want to come to your house, right? The song goes, I'm coming to your house today, if you know that little ditty. And he says he welcomed, welcomed him gladly. I don't know about you, but when I'm on my way to somewhere and there's a disruption, right? There's somebody, um, you know, that kind of seems like an obstacle because I don't have time to stop in this moment. How quickly would I be able to welcome that person gladly? It'd be the discipline of hospitality in that moment, wouldn't it? Verse 7, all the people saw this and began to mutter, right? They're seeing this play out. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Can you imagine being accused of that? Jesus has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now you have to believe, between verse 7 and verse 8, was a pretty significant stretch of time, albeit probably short. Maybe it was uh, over a meal. Maybe he spent the night. But during that stretch of time, he encountered a Jesus who changed the trajectory of his life to, to the point of his own career and propelling him to be generous after he's been stingy for probably a long stretch of time. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too, this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. This was his purpose. And even though he's on the way to, do, to live out that purpose, that mission, he sees that every single interruption is also an opportunity to fulfill that mission. What is most interesting to me is the deliberate action and decision Jesus made to look up. I mean, to look at, like, there he is. I guess that's going to be my mission, my opportunity for the day. As he was passing through, he looked up. Jericho wasn't the point. But no matter where Jesus found himself, people were always the point, because people were always his highest priority. So Jesus came to save, but what always happens before saving is seeking. We can't do the saving, but we can follow Jesus' model in doing the seeking. 
So Jesus, he, he saw Zacchaeus. To truly care about a person is to see them, isn't it? To care is to see. The call to love another, right, as we read in Scripture, it's not a project to complete. You know, I've loved one well today. It's a full-time way of life. And so the phrase Jesus saw, we see that 40 times in Scripture. That's no small thing. How Jesus observed, Jesus, he saw. So, you know, this is like, okay, well, that's great, he saw. But if we examine our lives, how often do we deliberately take the time to see the one in front of us? Our aim, as we are, to be lights in the world is to essentially see people for who they are and then surprise them, disrupt their own expectation for the way other people work. Because people are always busy, people are always in a frenzy, always on the way to somewhere. But if we deliberately stop and see and take the time to love, it's going to surprise them in the best way possible. So practically, I mean, this plays out almost on a daily level. You know, whether you're uh, at the grocery checking out, right, the cashier is technically a means to your end to making that transaction and getting on your way. Do we see that person? Do we take an extra couple of seconds to thank them, maybe even ask them a question, right? Nobody's in line behind us. Do we see them and embrace that opportunity, that moment, right? The waitress or the waiter, right, when you're out at the restaurant, technically they're just a means to uh, what needs to happen in that transaction of getting your meal, but that could be a a divine appointment even, or opportunity to see someone, right? You typically have multiple opportunities when they come to your table to ask them questions, to let them know that you care, to slow down and understand it's more than just you sharing a meal with the people that you're with. You know, as we're out and about technically year-round, but especially this time of year, uh, it's interesting because I think all of us have the same heart in wanting to help people, but there's certain um, moments that are awkward because we don't know what the right thing to do is or it just makes us uncomfortable. Like when you're driving to a stoplight, it could even be here in Florence or especially in Cincinnati, and there's a homeless person, right, with a sign. You're like, oh, man, I feel bad. I, but if I make eye contact, I feel like I really need to do something. Is that worse to make eye contact and then not do anything? And so that'll, that awkward moment will never probably go away. But know that that's a good thing, that you feel awkward. That's a positive thing because you care. But I would encourage us, in this case specifically, as opposed to hoping that we're not disrupting that moment, we're proactive. Here's what I mean. Practically speaking, and, and Jenny and some others have mentioned this before, and my wife and I have been in this for several years, put together a blessing bag in, uh, and, and leave several of them in your car, right, that's accessible while you're driving if you pass somebody. Um, you know, you're at a stoplight or whatever, and you fill that with socks, with hygiene items, with snacks. And so it's kind of a proactive way because that flips the script, doesn't it, on that feeling you get in your stomach, like, oh, man, I really want to help them, but I don't know what I I get. I don't want to give them money. And so then you're almost like, oh, sweet. I've prepared for this opportunity to bless someone. So I call them a blessing bag to give them something that could practically meet a need. So in those moments when we are seeing people, we're aiming to disrupt their expectation. Because in our day and age, people expect you to be rude, to be impatient, to be cheap, right? especially this time of year. Surprise them with kindness, patience, and generosity in the midst of this chaos where people are just trying to fulfill their means, their purpose. Refuse to make people the means to your purposes. Because we may miss the main opportunity to celebrate what this season is supposed to be all about. So now I want to take this one step further, right? There's, that's kind of on a broad scale, but I want to bring this, I want to narrow this as much as possible today. Because oftentimes, I think that we, even with good intentions, we prioritize this wrong. Here's what I mean. Sometimes the ones who are the most difficult to truly see are the ones closest to us. So as we frame this season, right, I, I pray that it's more than just a season where we discipline ourselves and seeing those the right way. But familiarity specifically can cause us to take for granted 
what or who is always there. And we end up missing the richness that is found in the predictable and the known. Here's what I mean for me personally. So my wife Emily and I have been married for almost five years, not a, not a terribly long time, but long enough to have literally thousands of hellos and goodbyes walking out the door and coming home at the end of the day. And after a while, right, for those of us that have a routine, it can become just that. Yeah, okay, see you at the end of the day, see you, see you. And, uh, of course, you know, we always enjoy seeing each other, but it can just be kind of come mundane. It's kind of transactional. My wake-up call over the last year or so has been having uh, Levi being at an age where his face lights up when I walk in the door and I can find my tone, right? If I, like, okay, I'm, here's my greeting for Levi. Here's my greeting for my wife, right? And it was kind of like, oh, I should probably be, not that, not that I'm going to talk to her in the same way, but I probably should be just enthusiastic, and uh, she's not easily offended. It's not like this, was, she's, this is something she called me out on, but I kind of like, was thinking about it. I was like, well, yeah, it's Emily. You know, she's always there. She knows I love her, but Levi, like, well, he's, look how excited he is to see me. And, oh, how you doing, right? He can't even tell me about his day, right? Can't even express what he's been up to. And so it was really kind of a conviction to me, am I going to discipline myself to be enthusiastic about truly seeing my wife and the opportunity of the gift of being able to walk through the door and have that moment of connection? And so I really, I mean, this, is, this seems like a small thing, but I believe that Scripture speaks to kind of this proximity responsibility that we all have. It seems to be very clear on really this prioritized responsibility. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And this is significant on multiple levels. Jesus is with his disciples in Jerusalem, and he tells them, what he's about to tell them is the last thing he tells them before he ascends to be with his Father. Acts 1, 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so our call as a church is to literally love the world, right? To go and reach people. But where do we begin? We begin where God already has us. It's interesting that he doesn't just say, go to the ends of the earth, right? Go all out, loving everybody all the time. He seems to prioritize this geographically. And so loving who is most near to us, that's where it begins, so these last words of Jesus speaking into his disciples, a very clear mission. It's this proximity influence. Am I a good witness in my own home? Now, in some ways, this seems like such a common sense conversation, but at the same time, if you're like me, it's very, very convicting. Because oftentimes, if I'm being honest, I can be at my best when I'm closer to the ends of the earth. <laughs> and it's easier, right, to just go than it is to be totally, fully in the moment with the ones who know us the best. Loving those who are near is your first ministry. Loving those who are near is your first ministry. This is why I wanted to have this conversation, you know, entering into this next six-week stretch because you probably already have family plans. You're going to spend more time with uh, not just immediate family, but some of your extended family um, than any other time of the year, which I think presents opportunity. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 says, Husbands, Love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for. This is the highest love. This is sacrificial love. And so when I think about my prioritized responsibility, the best of who I am better go to what is right in front of me because this is where God has me. This is who God has put around me. A very practical example, just a week ago, Emily, my wife, really wanted to have lights on the house, right? That's fun, um, but that involves getting on the roof. Now, she, she cares about my safety, my well-being. She doesn't want me to just do something reckless, and uh, she was determined to stay outside and watch me do this in case I fell, as if that would have mattered. <laughs> Catch me, right? 
<laughs> Seriously, it was Levi's nap time. I was like, just go in, right? You'll probably hear if something goes wrong. <laughs> she didn't really like that comment. But when I was thinking, thinking about that and thinking about this message, like, if I'm being honest, I mean, if most of you asked me to go to your house to put up lights, you know, from the roof, I would probably say no. Like, like you know, I would want to help you, and I would find someone who would be a lot better at it than me. But I don't know if I would risk life and limb like I would for my wife, right, to make her day. But there's a certain level, right, urgency, like this is my wife. Like if I do this for her, of course, I wouldn't ask any of you to put lights on my roof either, then uh, this is my primary responsibility. So the most important ministry God has given each one of us is to first love those closest to us, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's interesting, again, how we're sometimes more comfortable going to do God's work at the ends of the earth than we are going home. I've experienced this multiple times in ministry over the years. Because if I go home, I mean, there's, none of us are perfect, and who knows that better than anybody else? The people at home. And so where there's history, there's brokenness, there's hurt, that's where we're known, like our flaws and all. And so it's often much easier to be a hero at work to be a hero out with friends, whatever your hobby outlet is, the place where people all only see the best of you, in those circles, we can kind of dodge being known. If I teach a message on patience today, and Emily's sitting out here, and, and right before I taught this message, she saw me be impatient, I'm not going to make eye contact with her during this message. <laughs> because she's like, oh man, they have no idea how far he really needs to go in that area of patience. Like, <laughs> They're out there thinking, oh, man, I wish I could be patient like Darren. And my wife's like, oh, man, he, there's, there's 100 other people that should be giving this message before my husband, right? I mean, that's where you're fully seen. That's where you're fully known. So part of this, I want you to be encouraged in knowing that making an impact in your own home is often the most difficult. And some of you lived out this frustration on a greater level than I have. You're leading from this place of vulnerability. You're trying to be a positive influence on people who know how far you really are from perfect but our families often present the greatest opportunity. So who has God put in my proximity? Who is my Jerusalem? Because I know many of you have family members who don't um, know Christ. And you're, you've been so frustrated, some of you, for decades, right? Because you understand that your, your words are falling on deaf ears and you need somebody else to speak in. And sometimes being family gets in the way of them properly receiving what God has for them. Now, it's interesting you probably thought about this as well, that we don't know much about Jesus' first 30 years of life, right? Most of Scripture describes his three years of ministry. And so I got to thinking practically, did the first 30 count for something, or was he just kind of putting in his time until God said go? Like, why wouldn't God just use him sooner? Did maybe the, the first 30 years just putting his time in? Was it all just preparation for the part that really mattered? And so there's a lot that we don't know. But <laughs> those of us who have siblings all have growing up stories of moments we were at odds with one another. I can't imagine being the brother to someone who is considered the son of God, right? Perfect, sinless, right? I mean, I, I got to say, is he never put in the corner or did he do like some, did he, I don't know, can you disobey and not sin? I, I mean, we're kind of going down a road, we won't know this side of heaven, but uh it seems to be an impossible task. Like, that's a major bummer if your brother is the savior of the universe. So think about, like, seriously, think about this practically. Now, I don't know how much is known, right? We don't see that in scripture. Like, okay, well, this is when they found out. But what would have to happen for one of your siblings to refer to you as Lord? I mean, I don't know about you, but that's not going to happen in my house, right? Growing up or even now, that's a pretty extreme thing. 
And so James, the brother of Jesus, also one of his disciples, uh, we see in Scripture it took him a while, right, to totally be all in and understanding the call of his own brother being the Savior, the Messiah. But James chapter 2, verse 1, James writes, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, can you imagine your brother writing that, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? See, going to the ends of the earth looks and sounds really spiritual. It does, right? That's why we do mission trips, uh, as far because it's our call to reach the ends of the world. And when you go on a mission trip or when you hear about other people going on a mission trip, you're like, oh, wow, that's pretty extreme. That's one of the most spiritual things it seems like you could do. But oftentimes, the most spiritual thing you can do is to love well the one nearest to you. Like, that counts. There's not, like, extra points for going to Africa. <laughs> and sometimes that's the easier task, to love those to the ends of the earth than it is to love the ones who know us, flaws and all. Over the years, uh, I've, I've had conversations with several stay-at-home moms who have been kind of um, discontent as far as their purpose in life and believing that, okay, what does God want me to do? And I've always tried to encourage them that they're, they're, they're fulfilling their primary purpose of being a mom, and there is nothing more important than that. There's no being a mom and something else to find your fullness of your significance, your purpose right now. And so sometimes we get caught with feeling like if I'm just loving the ones right in front of me, that's not enough. Like, that's primary. That's a big deal. So I want to encourage us, you know, again, over these next six weeks to prioritize presence. To prioritize presence. To show up, right? If I were to put out a cliche out there, I'd say prioritize presence with people over giving presents to people. Because we have the opportunity... Like, we're going to buy presents, right? There's nothing wrong with presents. Get presents. Like, that's fun. Open up the package. Like, that's great. But time with people, the discipline of showing up is the greatest gift we could give somebody else. So maybe this is the year to simplify stuff and focus more on making a memory, a story that will last, a story that you can tell, right? It's not just remember that year I got electronic battleship. It's like, remember that year we did this, we made this memory. This past year, we, we did that, and we've, as a family, tried to value um, stories and life experience over stuff. And uh, my mom's kind of led the way in that. My mom grew up in Pennsylvania, uh, but she has never been to the northeastern states, you know, like Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, that area. And so this past June, uh, my wife Emily and I, and Levi, of course, we said, Mom, we're going to take you to Maine. And, like, we're excited about this adventure. Emily and I had gone to Maine a few years ago and loved it, knew my mom would love it as well. And so we take my mom to Maine. Here's a picture. The marginal way is like a mile and a half stretch or so along the coast. It's a beautiful spot. And... Uh, we actually flew into Boston and uh, went to Quincy Market. Some of you guys are familiar with this area. Next uh, slide is us in front of Quincy Market. And, uh, man, I'm, I'm a sucker for those guys, you know, doing the balloons, right? Especially with a kid. <laughs> Levi's about one at the time. Like, I can't just walk by. You're like, oh, I mean, he's so nice. You know, the guy's enthusiastic. And, you know, you know I guess my kid needs a balloon, right? So that's, um, that's why you see balloons because, uh, you know, I'm a sucker and we stopped there. And so here's the thing. My mom had a blast. She thought it was the, the coolest thing in the world. We didn't do anything extravagant. We just took a road trip and had fun, went to the beach and things like that. About a month after that, my mom, uh, because she had so much fun and because it was great family time, she said, I'm going to take my mom to Maine. Now, you have to understand, my mom, she's 67 years old. She's had AFib, right? Uh, she's had some difficulties, you know, with breathing and heart issues. Uh, so that's one thing, one factor. And uh, my nana, my mom's mom, I just turned 92 years old. So she was 91 years old. She had a stroke a couple of years ago, doesn't get around really well. So here's my mom thinking that's a great idea to take a road trip with her mom to Maine. 
And, yeah, right, yeah, it's, it's a very nice sentiment, but I, I, is it a wise decision? I, I, I don't really think so, but... Um. <laughs> And so my mom's a really frugal person. She drives from Wabash, Indiana to Pennsylvania where uh, her mom still lives, the house that they grew up in, picks her up, and they drive all the way to Boston um, because my mom couldn't find an affordable hotel. It ended up being like 500 miles, something crazy um, by the time it was all said and done. And uh, so it's an exhausting deal. And uh, when my, <laughs> my mom uh, tries to navigate this whole experience by replicating the itinerary that I had kind of put together. Like, I love planning trips. And so my mom just felt the need to kind of do every single thing that we did. Like, that's ridiculous, mom. But we're going to tell you, like, the places that we ate, you know, the places that we went to. And uh, so here's my mom, <laughs> the marginal way with uh, her mom, my Nana, 91 years old at the time, just turned 92 a couple days ago. And uh, that's, you see them sitting, and that looks very peaceful, but what it took for my mom, who's not in great physical condition, to push her mom in a wheelchair to get to that spot uh, is quite an endurance, a task of endurance. And so, of course, uh, my mom didn't want to stop with just that one highlight and go to the next slide. She decided to also go to Boston. <laughs> That's so ridiculous. Like, mom... <laughs> We're seriously talking to my mom on the phone, like, Mom, you don't need to go there. Like, driving in Boston, right, she saw how stressful that was when she was with me, but she was determined to do that, and of course, she's like, where, where were those balloons again? Like, Mom, that, we weren't even searching balloons, it's not that big a deal. And so she was determined to make that memory. So again, was this decision wise? I would argue that it is absolutely not. I did not recommend this to my mom, but she was determined, but even though it was not wise, it was probably the most loving thing she could do, and the, the reality of love is it is far from efficient, isn't it? Love is incredibly inefficient, <laughs> and we're going to have the opportunity to take time, because it will always take time to properly love the one in front of us, and what I have learned over the years is that quantity is quality. Oftentimes we think, okay, I want to spend quality time with someone, like what is it that we love to do? Let's get some quality time in, and then let's move on to the next day. The reality is quantity time, deciding to show up in somebody else's life, quantity is quality. And so this season... I want to encourage you to choose to engage instead of escape. Choose to engage instead of escape. Refuse isolation just because it's easier. So here we are. And this, this hits all of us in different ways. Some of you are like, yep, yep, got it. This is my favorite time of year. Love family. Love everybody I'm going to see. Like, it's great. But there are some of us here today, right, at both campuses where there's some reluctance. There's some hoping I don't have to see this person, go this place, stay there very long. And so this is, I'm encouraging all of us to kind of stop and to frame these next six weeks, to refuse isolation just because it's easier. Choose to engage over escape. So for some of you, you need to make the phone call. You know what phone call you need to make. Some of you need to send the card. You send the card. Some of you need to plan to get in the car, take a road trip. Some of you need to buy the plane ticket. Some of you need to choose to finally reconcile. Again, this hits everybody in a different way. Some of you know exactly what you need to do. And all of us, to a certain extent, probably know that perspective is often found immediately when we lose someone. This past uh, Tuesday, we had our legacy service we do annually for all the families in our church who have lost a loved one. So this past Tuesday night in this room, there were over 40 families um, just showing up to lean on each other. And the entire front of this stage was lined with pictures of their loved ones and a candle right in front. And so we do some music, we do a short message, but most of that time is spent slowly calling out the name of that individual who had passed, that someone had lost. In that family, right, some of them had 
over 10 people walk forward, and that takes some time, especially if they're sitting in the back, to light that candle, right? And there's nothing else happening except all of us watching that family light that candle that represents the loss of a loved one. Because those who have lost a loved one get it more than anybody else. All they're wanting, all they're longing for in this moment is for one more memory to be able to make with the one that they have lost. Perspective often comes when it's too late. So here's your message to your loved one or your friend, right? Your Jerusalem, your proximity that God has put you in. I'm coming to your house today. That should be a good message, not a negative message, right? They should gladly be welcoming you. I'm coming to your house today. So when you do, you come with the right spirit, with the intent to make it worth their while, to be a gift in their life. And when it comes to presence, again, quantity is quality. Decide to show up, recognizing that love is inefficient. There's other things you could be doing. And so in that moment, right, let's picture that moment, right? For some of you, you love everybody in your family, that's great. For, for, for the rest of us, imagine that moment where you're just putting your time in. You, you're probably ready to leave, and there will definitely eventually be a time to leave. But when you have that first inclination to just walk out the door and isolate because it's easier, decide to instead to press in to presence. Live out the discipline of staying. All right, so in your head, in this moment, in, the, in your mind, I'm here in your mind, I'd rather be there, right? Just acknowledge I'm here, but I'd rather be there. I'm uncomfortable. I don't know what to say. Maybe I'm upset. My in-laws don't get me, right? I just can't wait for this stretch of time to be over. But I'm choosing to stay because God has given me the gift of people, of presence. May I not miss it. As we close, it's always important to come back to how Jesus lived this out. How he so simply lived out the power of presence, intentional relationship. I mean, it's amazing to me that he, Jesus, perfect, sinless, son of God, could have done anything. He spent the same, his, his stretch of ministry time with the same guys, the same people during that entire stretch. It's not really an efficient motto of leadership, if you ask me, which is why he put on display to us the reality that to truly make a difference is to love, to be all in, to invest in who is right around us. Because ultimately, we have the opportunity to love another toward God. And that's where it gets really real for many of you. You feel the weight, the burden of someone who doesn't have a relationship with Christ. And when you show up, you do the seeking, God does the saving. You don't know how he's gonna use your discipline of show, merely showing up in that moment. So maybe this will be the year that your loved one turns toward Christ. And all we did was show up. Said, God, I'm making myself available to you. So may we slow ourselves down so that we can be used by God to be all in wherever he has us, whoever he puts in our lives. Let's pray. Father, in these moments, as we uh, don't know really what the next six weeks entail outside of our personal agenda, I pray that we are as open as possible to what you have for us, and specifically who you have for us. And so, God, I pray that over the six weeks, uh, these moments uh, come about so that we have stories uh, of impact where you've led us into moments of uh, ministry. And so may we embrace this uh, proximity influence opportunity to love the one in front of us. And when we go to bed at night, we know that that was enough. It's nothing big, it's nothing flashy. We didn't go to the ends of the earth, but we showed up to the opportunity of the day. And we thank you for doing that first for us, for loving us right where we are as we are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.